Well, thank you, Tom, for praying and reading the scriptures for us. Thank you, Caroline, for honoring Christ, honoring God with your testimony. Um, I echo Tom's words that were rejoice to hear of your salvation, to hear of your heart, to seek Him above all things. And we hope to run the race with you for a lifetime. Um, may God be glorified in your life and as you live uh, your life in Christ with us. Thank you. <clears throat> well, just a quick announcement. Um, our fastest growing ministry at Cornerstone is the children's ministry, uh, Pebbles and children's ministry. Um, the children's ministry is currently taking applications to serve in their ministry. They are looking for a few good um, men and women who will serve our children, teach them the Word of God, shepherd their souls, pray for them, and just out and out, you know, have just uh, be their friend and play with them and love them in the Lord. Um, in many ch- churches, there's often a low standard for ministers in children's ministry. Um, it's a difficult ministry to serve in, and and um, usually a low standard is set, and uh, they will just take any warm body to serve with the children. Well, that's not the case with Cornerstone. We really want the best and the brightest of our church to serve um, in our education department. It is a very challenging ministry for many reasons. Uh, children's ministry... Junior high ministry that has to start, youth group, even college group, probably has the greatest temptation to be pragmatic, um, greatest temptation to be unbiblical in terms of teaching, in terms of um, activities and philosophy of ministry. Most children's ministries or youth groups are dog and pony show, right? like uh, pyrotechnics, rather than solid, <clears throat> God-centered, um, theolo- theology-driven um, teaching and ministry. So, um, mi- ministering in this context requires a deep understanding of God's Word, <clears throat> clear understanding of a biblical philosophy of ministry, and also a personal love for children. So, if, if you have an inkling, a desire, and a desire to aspire to these things, we ask that you would prayerfully consider serving uh, with the, the children of our church, and you can talk to uh, Mr. Danny Lee concerning this. At the same time, it's a very rewarding and satisfying ministry. Um, it, is, it honors the Lord. It glorifies God. It is a clear command of Scripture in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, as well in the New Testament, Ephesians 6. Christ said in Matthew 19.14, Do not hinder the little ones to come to me. So Christ desires um, little ones to come to Christ. So Christ, for us to serve in that capacity, it is pleasing to the Lord. It is a very rewarding ministry in a sense where you you can see God work, the Holy Spirit work in the hearts of young people. Um, I've seen it firsthand, uh, I haven't gotten his permission, but I'll go ahead and share anyways. <clears throat> you know, our neighbors', neighbors children come to our church. Uh, we pick them up. They come over at 8.30 in the morning, and we feed, them, we feed them food, and we bring them out here. And in the beginning, you know, they didn't really, I don't think, really like church. And uh, in the beginning, they were a handful. But 
just in few weeks time of learning God's word and being shepherded by the leaders of our church. I mean, they have changed so much, particularly Tim. This guy, um, life-transforming time <clears throat> at the children's ministry at Cornerstone Bible Church. He's a new man. So if you want to see if God works in children's ministry, just talk to Tim and you'll see that. But not only Tim, um, this past week, I've had a really interesting week. I had the opportunity to go to UCLA and minister God's Word at AACF there. I had the opportunity to go to San Diego, UC San Diego and minister God's Word there. And I had the opportunity to fellowship with some of our young people. I went to uh, UCLA and I had dinner with Jane Park. And uh, she sat in the ministry and we had tons of fellowship. <clears throat> and she's a small group leader at UCLA and she was... Uh, a girl that she's leading in Bible study was also present, and she was introducing me to her, and was encouraged to see her grow in the Lord. She, had, she went to Albania for missions last year, and um, she's leading another other sisters and evangelizing and serving the Lord. And then this Friday, I met up with Stephen Hong, and he's um, one of the youngest ever leaders of CCM in the his, short history of that ministry is East San Diego. The so, first sophomore, one of the first sophomores to be leading a campus ministry. And just we're talking about leadership issues. You know, we're talking about ministry and philosophy of ministry and, and godly character. And it was such a joy for me to see that. I, that. I think when I first met Steve, he was eight years old, right? Nine years old. Same with Jane. And they were like, like Tim and Eunice, you know, maybe younger. And to see them uh, aspiring to minister and serving the Lord and making an impact for God's kingdom in many people's lives, the joy to see. And that all started you know, 11 years ago when they were children. <clears throat> some minister, some godly Christian took time out of their lives to teach the Word of God to these young children. And the seed that was sown in, uh, in faith uh, took root in their hearts, and now uh, there are men and women of God aspiring to to glorify God with their lives. So we have just a whole spectrum: young children who need to be taught and shepherded, all the way to testimonies of God's work in children's ministry. So, with all of that, if you have a heart, an inkling, a desire to minister in this context, please talk to Mr. Danny Lee. Well, <clears throat> let's get to our study for this morning. Many of you have called me, emailed me. I've gotten to talk to you during our fellowship times after church. <clears throat> and many of you have said to me that this current study on God's passion for His own glory from John 12 has been a life-changing study. And you know, I, I'd agree with you. The response from our study together has been tr- tremendous. There has been a fervent and zealous response that I hadn't seen since, gosh, our study in John 10, the basic truths, or 1 Timothy 3. I am so thankful that the Holy Spirit is mightily at work in many of your hearts. I know that it's not Cornerstone, it's not me. It really is the power of God's Word. Several of you you have shared with us about missions, um, desiring, praying, being open to going. If God would so lead, I was talking to Bob this week and he was saying how we all need to pursue God's will about missions and hold our lives open to Him, hold our hands open in terms of our lives. He was telling me how many people think about serving in missions after retirement 
and he was telling me <clears throat> how he doesn't want to give God leftovers, you know. Let me live my life, pursue my dreams. And after I'm done with my life, if I, if I, if I live long, if I make it to 65, then I'll give you the last 10 years of my life. God, Bob was saying, no, he, he wants to give his best years to the Lord. And um, I agree, and apparently many of you agree as well. And so for that, I say amen. <clears throat> I am thankful to God for our study in John 12. Personally as well, it has had a great impact on my life, on my heart. <clears throat> my view of life, death, eternity has been forever changed by our time together in God's Word. Well, let me just review quickly our progression thus far in terms of God's glory. Maybe a, great, uh, maybe a theme that you could put on it is um, the ultimate end for all things is the glory of God. And we looked at John 12, 27 through 28, and we discovered about a month ago, and we discovered it again, that Jesus died for God. That His motivation for going to the cross was not pragmatic, was not man-centered. He was not an idolater. He obeyed um, Matthew 13. He obeyed the Ten Commandments. The first greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Then love your neighbors. The Christ obeyed that. So His ultimate desire, his, his highest purpose, motivation of going to the cross was because he loved God, not because he loved us. And then we heard um, God's response. Christ said, Father, glorify your name. It was a declarative sentence. That that was his desire, that God's name be glorified. And God audibly responds to that declaration by saying, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And then we discovered that God's ultimate desire, that God's greatest passion is also for His own glory. That He is not a pragmatist, that He is not man-centered, that He loves Himself. He is passionate about the exaltation of His own name among the nations. And then we discovered last week, Christ responds to that, Christ said, yes, I want to glorify you and I want to spread your glory, not just to Jerusalem, not just to, to Judea or Galilee, but to all people. Remember the people that asked Christ this question were Greeks. They were Greek converts to Judaism. And therefore, when Christ says all people, He's talking about all kinds of people. Jews and Gentiles. He wants to be, He will be lifted up and He will spread God's fame, God's glory by drawing people from all over the world to Himself. And that's, that's confirmed by the Old and New Testaments how every tribe, tongue, language, every nation will be representing the kingdom of God because Christ will draw them to Himself. And then I challenged, we challenged all of you, what is our response? Our response is, yes, I want to live my life to spread your fame. I don't want to waste my life on vain pursuits. I want to live my life to declare your glory among all the nations. And that's what Paul said, right, in Romans 10. That how can men believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless someone preaches? And how can someone preach to them unless they go, unless they are sent? So, we are to go and take this message of God's glory throughout the world that men might be saved all for the glory of God. Now, I thought, man, that was awesome. Big period right there. You know, 
put that in a sermon packet, you know, put it in a CD series, and, and let's move on. But I realize in our study, in this passage, that there is one more group yet that will glorify God. It's not, it's not complete. From our passage today, we find that there is one more group of people who will also glorify God. We find that God is glorified by the salvation of the lost from all nations, and also God is glorified by the judgment of those who reject Him. By the judgment of those who reject Him. That the wicked, that those who reject Christ and blaspheme His name, they do not nullify God's Word. They do not frustrate God's plan to glorify Himself. They do not hinder Christ in any way from glorifying God. They do not stop the church, stop Christians from glorifying our our Lord's name. No, not at all. By their continual, abstinent sinfulness, sinners who die in sin incur the wrath and judgment of God. They also bring glory to God. They also bring glory to God. Proverbs 16.4 The Lord, Yahweh, works out everything for His own ends. Even the wicked, even the wicked, the Lord works out for His own ends. What is that? For His own glory. I mean, this is dramatized. This is revealed in, in one man in the Old Testament, and that's Pharaoh. God tells Moses in Exodus 9, 13 through 16, He tells Moses, in verse 13, Get up early in the morning. I want you to confront Pharaoh. You know, when Moses went to Pharaoh and said, The Lord, I am who I am, says, Let my people go. Yahweh says, Let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say in Exodus 5? Who is Yahweh? Never heard of Him. He's heard of me, but I've never heard of Him. Why should I let Him go? Who is, who is this Yahweh? God said, Okay, all right. I will reveal my name to Pharaoh, to Egypt, and to all nations. God says, go to Pharaoh and tell them, this is what Yahweh, the God of Hebrews says, let my people go, or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Verse 15, by now I could have stretched out, stretched out my hand. I could have flexed my muscles and struck you down and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off from the earth. I could have destroyed you with a wink. But I didn't do that. I have raised you up, verse 16, for this purpose. Pharaoh, I let you exist. I let you grow in your power. I let the splendor of this nation increase. Why? Exodus 9.16 That I might show you my power. That I might. That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is using Pharaoh for his own glory. To lift up his own name. In fact, after Egypt was redeemed from... After Israel was redeemed from Egypt... 
In Exodus 18, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, says, Praise be to the Lord. He's not a Hebrew. He says, Praise be to Yahweh who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. And he says, Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all other gods. For he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. The Bible is clear that God will be glorified no matter what. No man can rob God of his glory. Man's obedience glorifies God. But also, man's disobedience also glorifies God. That's why the title for the sermon today is God's Glory Stands Firm. God's glory is immovable. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be diminished by no one. And if you open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28, this was made explicitly clear to Israel by Moses in Deuteronomy 28. And Deuteronomy is Deuteronomos. Deuteronomy is second, Namos being law. God had given His commandments to Israel in Exodus. But because of their idolatry, that generation was cast off. This is a new generation. Um, Joshua and Caleb are taking the people of God into Canaan. Moses understands that he will not enter into the promised land. He has gone to the mountaintop. He has looked over. He has seen it, but he will not enter. And so, on the other side of the Jordan, as they are about to enter the land that God had promised Moses gives the law for the second time. And then he gives them promises and warnings. Promises of blessings if they obey. And then Moses just lashes out, inspired by the Holy Spirit, warning after warning if they disobey. Verse 1, if you fully obey the Lord your God, and carefully follow all His commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. And from that point on, all the way to verse 14, is just a list of continual blessings. And how... God is pleased through their obedience. And God is pleased to bless them. God is glorified through their submission. Verse 15, there is a however. God says, if you do not obey the Lord your God, you do not carefully follow all His commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and in the country. Verse 19, you will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. You, you will, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you are destroyed. Verse 22, the Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever, inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with, will, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. Verse 29, at midday you will grope about like a blind man in the dark. You will be unsuccessful in everything you do. 
Day after day you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. Verse 37, you will become a thing of horror and an object of scorn and ridicule to all the nations where the Lord will drive you. Verse 43, the alien who lives among you will rise above you higher and higher, but you will sink lower and lower. He will lend to you, but you will not lend to him. He will be the head, but you will be the tail. Verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst, nakedness, dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord your God sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Verse 54, even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will have no compassion on his own brother or the wife he loves or his surviving children. Verse 56, the most gentle and sensitive woman among you, so sensitive and gentle that she would not venture to touch the ground with the sole of her foot, will begrudge her, the husband she loves and her own son or own daughter. Go down to verse 58. If you do not carefully follow all the words of this law which are written in this book and do not revere this glorious, awesome name, Yahweh your God, the Lord will send fearful plagues on you and your descendants. Verse 60, He will send diseases. Verse 61, Every kind of sickness and disaster not recorded in the book of the law until you are destroyed. You who are numerous as stars in the sky will be left, but few in number. Why? Because you did not obey the Lord your God. And verse 63, Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, in equal measure, it will please Him to ruin you, to destroy you. God's pleasure. God's Joy over his own glory is equal in handing out blessings for, for obedience. Also, punishment for disobedience. God is glorified either way. He is pleased to save. He is also pleased to judge. Why? You know, and I mean, God is a God of love. But God is a thrice holy God as well. He is a just God, a righteous God, a God who hates sin, a God who is passionate for His own holiness. Therefore, the Lord works out everything for His own ends. Proverbs 16.4 Even the wicked for a day of disaster. Our passage today shows us the extent of God's holiness and God's sovereignty, the perfect sovereignty of God. It teaches us today that even in the worst evil wrought by man, the murder of his own son, and even by the men who stubbornly refuse to believe in him, our God is unchanged in his glory. Our God is glorified. Well, let's go to the text. I've set the thesis before you. I, I aim to prove it. By today's passage, John 12, 34-41, we left off last week in verse 32, When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Some believe that verse 33 goes to verse 32. I believe verse 33 goes to verse 34. 
John says, and verse 33 begins John's commentary here. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He said this because the, cro- the crowds are mistaken. And they say in verse 34, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And so it's this unending debate, unending discussion about things that Christ had irrefutably proven over and over again by testimony and by deed. And yet they're still perplexed. They're still questioning. They still want to debate. They're still arguing amongst themselves about the identity of Jesus Christ. Our Lord here does not answer them. You will see that the, the text doesn't fit because what is Christ saying? Well, it doesn't fit because he ignores their dialogue, their discussion. He's saying, time for talk is over. Time for dialogue and debate is past. Time is actually short. The time now is for you to believe. Jesus said in verse 35, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now, Bible students are unsure if this is still Palm Sunday or if it's Monday or Tuesday. It's no later than Tuesday. Regardless, our Lord is at most five days removed from the cross. At the least, Three days removed from the cross. Christ is saying, I have three more days with you guys. Light is passing by. Darkness is coming. Time now is not for you to talk anymore and discuss. Time now is for you to believe. Believe now. And then he said these things. In verse 36, he departed and hid from them. And this is the last time. This is just like what Moses did. Moses, when he confronted Pharaoh for the last time, he said, after the ninth plague, I will see you no longer. This is, our meeting is is over. It's done. God has hardened your heart because you have hardened your heart against Yahweh. There will be a plague against this this nation. God's going to break your back and I will see you no longer. And Moses retreated and they never saw each other again. Same thing here with Christ. Christ, for the last time in verse 36, said these things and he hid himself. He retreated and Christ's public ministry, his three and a half or three and a half years of ministry is over in verse 36. From this point on, he focuses all the way to John 18 when he's crucified. He focuses on his 12 disciples. You'll find that out from weeks and months to come. It's Christ praying for his disciples, teaching his disciples, exhorting his disciples. His ministry, his declaration, his proving himself to Israel is over. Private ministry has begun. In fact, next time they see each other is at the um, um, Pilate's um, trial, and Christ does not address the crowds. His dealings with them is over in verse. 36. And so what is our Lord's last plea? His plea is for them to believe in Him while you have the light. Believe, trust, and commit. 
But verse 37, Apostle John makes a commentary on the condition of their hearts, of the crowd. It is a very sad and confusing reality. It is that most of them still do not believe in the Lord. After Christ had done so many simeons, right? So many signs, they still are stubbornly, adamantly refuse to acknowledge Christ, Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, and as the Son of God. They stubbornly close their eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ. John 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, tabernacled with us for a while. And John says, I saw His glory. We have all seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. The writer of Hebrews says, I saw His glory. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. How did John, how did the apostles see the glory of Christ? Our Lord revealed His glory by His miracles, by His works, by His what John calls Simeon. Unique to the Gospel of John. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, describe Christ's miracles with a variety of words. They use the word teras, like wonder. It's wonderful. It's amazing. They use the word dunamis, dynamite, powerful works. John almost exclusively uses the word Simeon. He uses it 17 times. And the word is sign, meaning every miracle that Christ performed had a significance, had a message. It was pointing to a divine reality. It was revealing God's glory, revealing His deity. These signs that Christ performed were designed to to manifest His glory as God's Son. Um, If you remember, you know, a year and a half ago, we did an outline of Gospel of John, and if you remember that, props to you, you remember that the structure of John is structured around seven miracles that Christ performed. The first miracle was 2.11, wedding at Cana. Our Lord changed water into wine. In John 4, remember that the nobleman whose son was dying in Capernaum? And Norman says, Lord, come down and come, to, come down to our city and heal my son. And Christ said, Go, your son will live. And Norman took Christ at his words and he left. And while he was on his way, his servants came and said, Your son is well. He is alive. And he realized at the precise moment that Christ said, Your son will live, his son was healed, revealing God's glory. And John. Five, the man who was paralyzed for 38 years in Jerusalem. Remember that? The angel would come and the pool of Shiloham and stir the water. And there was a myth that the first one to enter the pool would be cured. But what a pathetic a reality. He is paralyzed. How can he be the first one to enter the pool? So he is the, the most 
helpless man, helpless one who is ill, Christ asks him, do you want to get well? He cures him. He heals him on the Sabbath. The fourth and fifth miracle. Fourth miracle is feeding of the 5,000. If you add women and children, almost 10,000 people were fed. And then the Sea of Galilee, after that miracle, Christ walks on water. And then in John 9, the man was born blind. Our Lord gives him sight. And then finally, raising of Lazarus, the most public, the most powerful miracle. The greatest enemy of man is death, and Christ revealed His glory as being above death. But raising Lazarus was dead for four days. All these signs had one purpose. That was to reveal the glory of Christ. John 2, 23-24. John 2:11. excuse me. John 2:11. After the first miracle, John said this, the first of His miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed His glory. John 11. Christ hears that Lazarus is sick, but He waits, He hesitates, He delays His return. He waits until Lazarus is four days in the tomb. Why does He do this? He tells His disciples, John 11, 4, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. And then verse 40, Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That's why John is perplexed in verse 37. He performed these incredible miracles, incredible signs, revealing His glory to the nation of Israel. But what is their response? What is the response of the people? Verse 37, Though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him. The Greek verb there is in the imperfect tense. It indicates that there was a constant and progressive unwillingness to accept Jesus with a genuine living faith. The signs were done clearly, testifying to His exalted character as God in flesh. And though there were exceptions here and there of people, individuals coming to Christ with faith, on the whole, Israel grew more and more callous in their heart. They grew insensitive to the works and the words of Christ. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? Verse 38. John says, The rejection of Jesus by Israel was ordained by God was prophesied in the Old Testament so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? A rhetorical question. To whom? Not this nation. Not these people. We need to acknowledge the the purpose statement of verse 38. It shows that Israel's rejection was not a frustration of God's plan. God did this so that His Word, decreed in eternity, 
declared by Isaiah the prophet, might be fulfilled. That divine order demands that those who willfully harden themselves against Christ will also be hardened by God. Just like Pharaoh happened to Israel. This was all done according to God's perfect and sovereign will. And Pharaoh, Judas, Israel, and the lost today have no one to blame but themselves. They cannot blame God. They have not sinned cheaply. They have sinned that results in eternal damnation, cost their soul. They have no one else to blame but themselves. It is, ma- it is made clear that the guilt remains entirely on the side of Israel because through their hardening, Christ goes to the cross and thus secures the salvation of the elect. Not only does it, not only are they hardened in their unbelief as a fulfillment of prophecy, it results in verse 39. They could not believe. They could not believe. It is moral inability. Their rebellion is confirmed by God. So God gives them over to their own rebellion. So faith was not possible for them. They could not believe. Turn with me to Romans 1. And we see um, the height of God's judgment as it works out in the world. Um, How God confirms stubborn sinners. How God gives over those who rebel against His will and confirms their judgment. Romans 1, 22, talking about Gentiles. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. So what is God's response? God's response is, you're going to exchange my glory and give my glory to someone else and you think you're frustrating my plans you think you're nullifying the plan of God and you're thwarting my sovereignty? Well, this is, this is my response. Therefore, verse 24, God gave them over. Have more of it. Go all out in your sinfulness. Go, go to the extreme, the sinful desires of their hearts, the sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. You want to exchange the truth of God for a lie? Go ahead and serve the create, Creator rather than the Creator. So verse 26, again, second time, God gave them over to further, greater sins, to shameful lusts, where their women exchanged natural relationships for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God says, okay. Third judgment. He gave them over to a depraved mind 
to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they cannot believe because God has given them over. They not only continue to do these things, they know it's wrong. Verse 31, they know it deserves death, but they not only continue to do these things, but they endorse it, they encourage, they approve others who practice them. That's the Gentiles. And then he goes to the Jews in Romans 2.17. Now, you, if you call yourself a Jew... Are you any better? You who rely on the law, brag about your relationship with God, are you superior? Verse 18. Are you an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants? Paul says, 21. You who teach others, do you teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law. Paul says, I know you. I am a Jew. I was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? The truth is, God's name, it's not exalted, it's not glorified among the nations because of the example of the Jewish nation. No, God's name is blasphemed. God's name is brought under reproach. It is denigrated. It is stepped on. It is spat at among the Gentiles because of Israel. Well, that's what happened in John 12. They would not believe. So God said, you cannot believe. And He gave them over to divine judgment. Verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn and be healed. It is, it is incredible. I say this again and again, and it makes sense to me. I don't know if it makes sense. I think it should make sense to you. The same heat that melts butter hardens clay. So, the nobleman whose son was dying... His heart melted when he saw the glory of God. The blind man who was healed, his heart melted before the glory of Christ. But for the vast majority of these people, because their hearts were like clay, the more glory they saw, their hearts didn't melt. Because they were like clay, it got harder and harder. And so, as Christ revealed himself more, instead of drawing them to Christ... It led them astray. More truth that was declared to them. Their eyes closed even more. And you know what's ironic? That's the exact same thing that happened to Pharaoh. Right? That's exactly what happened to Pharaoh. God redeemed these people from, is- from Egypt. God saved them from Pharaoh. Now Israel's heart was just like Pharaoh's heart. Right? Pharaoh saw ten plagues upon his nation. And come on, if somebody comes to me and says, 
look, you know, uh, Big Bear Lake is going to turn to blood. And I see that. I think I would fear. If, if someone predicts lice and boils and frogs and locusts, and the sun will be turned to darkness, and every firstborn son will die, I don't know, but I think most people would shudder and fear and repent and sackcloth and ashes and turn to God. But what did Pharaoh do? He hardened his heart. He refused to repent. He refused to submit to God, to Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? So God said, okay, I'm going to harden your heart. And so with every miracle, your heart will be made more calloused. And even at the end, Pharaoh wasn't repentant because right, he went after Israel and he, was, he died in the Red Sea. Same thing is happening to Israel. Same thing. All for God's glory. All to declare and to reveal that God's, God is not frustrated by man's sinfulness. Turn with me to Romans 9 and you think, wow, James, like that's really good, good stuff. That's really intense theology. I mean, don't give me credit. I didn't create it. I'm borrowing from Paul from Romans 9, 15 through 24. Romans 9, 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It's my mercy. I'm holy. You have sinned against me. My prerogative. I will give it to whom I want. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's my choice. It does not depend on man's desire or man's effort. But the critical issue is my mercy. Verse 17, But the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy. And He hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath, prepared for destruction. What if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy? He did this so that we might know His grace, know His tender mercies and compassion, whom He prepared in advance for glory. God uses the murderers of His Son. God uses those who refuse to submit to His authority all for His own glory. And in verse 41, Isaiah said these things because He saw His glory and spoke of Him. Isaiah chapter 6, I, I see the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe fills the temple. The whole earth is full of the glory of Christ. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And John is saying, that was Jesus. That was a theophany, Christophany in the Old Testament. A revelation of Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament. 
When Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus Christ, what did Isaiah do? He said, woe is me, this prophet of God. I'm a man who has unclean lips, meaning out of the overflow of the heart mouth speaks. Says, My heart is depraved. I am a sinner. I have sinned against the thrice holy God. I am condemned. I am ruined. I'm going to hell. That was Isaiah's response when he saw Jesus' glory. But not the people of Israel. John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw Christ's glory and spoke of Him. Well, just a few final thoughts. If you would turn to Romans 11 and Paul applies it for us. Um, first of all, let's consider the mercy of God that He would save us. Now we sing that song, I don't know what song it is, but you know, among the scoffers, the voices crying, calling out, mocking Christ, I hear my voice. Right? Let's consider Christ's mercy upon us. He didn't enact revenge. He didn't enact vengeance when He should have. I haven't seen any of these movies. I just noticed it this week. But among the top ten movies, there's a theme of vengeance. Right? There's that movie, um, Man on Fire. I read, read about it a little bit on the newspaper. This girl gets killed. Like, sorry if, you, if I give it away, but <laughs> Denzel just goes nuts. He goes ballistic, and he just, I think, kills everybody, right? And then, <laughs> there's that movie, Mean Girls. <laughs> I don't know, right? <laughs> there's girls who are mean, and so this girl enacts revenge, right? For the younger folks out there. Uh, there's that movie, Kill Bill. I will not see... Uh, evil movie like that, but it's, I think, from what I read, it's all about vengeance. It's all about revenge. Um, I think Denzel is man on fire. I mean, God's on fire. I mean, God's boiling over with anger at those who murdered his son. God put all men under disobedience and he he's every right to enact divine judgment and wrath upon everyone. And yet, by His own mercy and grace, He chooses to have mercy on some, on a few. So our first response ought to be one of humility. Ought to be one that we cherish our salvation because it results, because all for the glory of God. Because it reveals to us the mercy, the grace, the beauty, the love, the holiness, the glory of God given to His Son and given to us. Secondly, it also ought to, to give us humility as we relate to non-Christians, as we relate to those who do not know Christ. Paul says in Romans eleven nineteen, You will say then, branches were broken off. Israel was broken off so that the church might be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant. But be afraid. If God did not spare the natural branches, and because they do not believe, He broke them off and grafted in unnatural branches, do you think He will spare us if we do not believe? If we follow the way of Pharaoh, follow the way of Israel, into external religion, 
and yet do not practice genuine faith, if God did that to the natural branches, what will He do to the unnatural ones? Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in His kindness. It's talking about faith. And as we're studying in flock, what good is it, my brothers? Faith has no deeds. What is true faith? It is faith. It's true if it's lived out in obedience. So Paul applies it for us. Romans 12, 1-21. This is how believers, how we ought to respond to the mercy of Christ. Not like Israel, but how we are to respond to God saving us undeservedly. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Rather, think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us is one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him some to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. God, we do thank You for teaching us this morning. God, we are humbled at Your mercy and grace given to us on the cross. And Lord, may we glorify You by our obedience. And may we desire to spread Your fame throughout the world.
knowing that your glory stands firm. It is moved and unchanged by anything that we do. May we aspire to, to, to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ and that it might be clear by our lives that the Lord reigns. In Jesus' name, amen.